Let us pray. Pray. God, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So this morning, we've heard uh, the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. Always a fun way to start Holy Week. Uh, The children processing with their palms. Uh, The rest of us waving our fronds. Uh, And this morning, we even got to sing a song from the Broadway hit, God's Spell. Uh, There's always kind of a happy chaos as we remember this story every year on Palm Sunday. But there are other ways to make a memorable entrance. And to understand the meaning of this story, to understand the scope of it, uh, the purpose of it, the meaning, the power of it, uh, it's helpful to draw contrast with other stories. So, for example, there's a story from the life of Cleopatra. Cleopatra knew how to make a memorable entrance. We all know Cleopatra. She was the queen of uh, Egypt. Um, She was also contemporary with the time of Jesus. She lived just a couple decades earlier, and in fact, their stories overlap. You know, Herod the Great, that's the King Herod of the stories we read uh, at Christmas, the birth of Jesus. King Herod hosted Cleopatra once in Jerusalem. So her story and the story of Jesus overlap. Now, Cleopatra played on the big stage. At that point in time, she was the richest person in the Mediterranean. She was, uh, in current dollars, she she had a a wealth of $96 billion. Uh, She also had a child with Julius Caesar. So Cleopatra was always in the middle of the battles to shape the world, and she, uh, in fact, had designs on ruling the world. So there's a story of the time that she wanted to make a statement to the Romans. Now remember, the Roman Empire ruled that part of the world at that time. She wanted to impress the Roman general, Mark Anthony, with her wealth, with her power, with her royal prestige. So Mark Anthony had decamped to Tarsus, which is where Saul was from, Paul, Saul of Tarsus in the New Testament, Book of Acts. It's in sort of south-central, what's now south-central Turkey, so in that kind of east-north part of the Mediterranean. So Cleopatra sails up from Egypt. And when she reached the harbor where the river would take her into Tarsus, she transferred to a barge for the trip upriver. It was about 10 miles. Here's how she made her entry. And this is from a book uh, by Sylvia uh, Stacy Schiff titled Cleopatra, A Life that Won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a very interesting read. With your mind's eye, try to imagine this scene. Even more, imagine that you are a peasant farmer on the riverbank as Cleopatra glides by. A full manned galley would have traveled with 170 rowers, an escort of supply ships followed behind. The Queen of Egypt's presence was always an occasion. She floated up the bright crystalline river through the plains in a blinding explosion of color, sound, and smell. Her barge with gilded stern and soaring purple sails. As they dipped in and out of the water, silver oars, silver oars, glinted broadly in the sun. Their slap and clatter provided a rhythm section for the orchestra of flutes, pipes, and lyres assembled on the deck. She herself reclined beneath a gold-spangled canopy, dressed as Venus in a painting, while beautiful young boys like painted cupids stood at her sides and fanned her. Her fairest maidens were likewise dressed as sea nymphs and graces, some steering at the rudder, some working at the ropes, 
Wondrous odors from countless incense offerings diffuse themselves along the riverbank. If you want to impress the Romans on their terms, that is how you do it. That is how you make an entry. And if you've read any history, you know that Mark Anthony was very impressed. So now hold that story of Cleopatra entering Tarsus with this story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. One's playing a geopolitical game of empire building, and one is going around to villages telling stories and parables about the kingdom of heaven. Both of them mean to change the world. The question is how? By the power of wealth, prestige, might, or by the power of meekness, mercy, reconciliation, justice? The triumphal entry that Jesus makes is, is very different from Cleopatra. It looks different, feels different, sounds different. Apparently, it smelled different. Now, it is hard to know what was going through the minds of the people who had come with Jesus, the people who gathered around him. I'm sure there was joy. I'm sure there was hope. Um, they were going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Passover recalls uh, the ancient story that's told in the book of Exodus, the ancient Israelites freed from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. It's a story of liberation. And so now as these people with Jesus approach Jerusalem, remember they're living in occupied territory. They're living under the oppressive rule of the Romans. As they approach Jerusalem, I'm sure some of them remembered some of those stories from the past, like the Exodus, and they carry with them a longing for that freedom again. As they approach Jerusalem, it's likely that some of the people in that crowd rem uh, remember a story of another triumphal entry. So 150 years earlier, the Maccabees, which was a Jewish rebel group, had overthrown the corrupt Hellenistic rulers. And the worst of the lot was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, and you can look him up for yourself. But there's a story from the apocryphal uh, first Maccabees uh, in which Simon Maccabees has had a great military victory and in triumph he returns to Jerusalem. And his entry into Jerusalem is described this way. This comes from 1 Maccabees 13. On the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year the Jews entered Jerusalem with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Well, now that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? They entered Jerusalem with praise and with palm branches. And 150 years later, I'm pretty sure some of those folks around Jesus longed for someone like Simon Maccabee, someone who could crush a great enemy again. I'm pretty sure there was some of that religious, political fervor in the crowd that day. Here's the thing, those pilgrims weren't the only ones to remember that story of the Maccabees. The Romans knew those stories too. And they knew that the Feast of Passover, with pilgrims coming from all over, with this fervor for liberation, the Feast of Passover could be a tinderbox. And they had no interest in letting anyone get any big ideas. So as Jesus is entering Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives to the east, there's another entry from the west. It's Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, 
riding up from the imperial capital on the Mediterranean Sea at uh, Caesarea Maritima. Now, some of us have been during uh, Lent reading this book, Fight Like Jesus by Jason uh, Porterfield, and it includes a description of uh, this entry of Pilate to Jerusalem. It was a visual panoply of imperial power. Cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold, sounds, the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the crinkling of bridles, the beating of drums. There are lots of ways to make a memorable entry. Cleopatra, impressing with wealth and prestige. Simon Maccabees, celebrating a crushing military victory. Pilate, showing threatening power to ensure the Pax Romana, to ensure peace on Rome's terms. All of them meant to change the world. And the way they made their entrance symbolized their intent. Jesus means to change the world too, but in a very different way. And the way that Jesus enters Jerusalem symbolizes his intent. On the Mount of Olives, he sends two disciples to find a colt, to find a young donkey. And to help with the symbolism, uh, the writer of Matthew uh, makes the connection to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah could foresee the coming peace of God. And in chapter 9, Zechariah describes it this way, and it's excerpt in our reading today. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious. Is he humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? And then Zechariah goes on. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. That's what Jesus has in mind. That's the symbolism of his entry to Jerusalem. Clearly, it's a staged piece of political theater. The trappings of a king, but a very different kind of kingdom. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He's entering the seat of power. He's entering from the Mount of Olives, and in the Hebrew Scriptures, that's a messianic location. Zechariah covers that, too, a little bit later. But Jesus is on a donkey. He's not on a war horse, not on a steed. The symbolics are all there. Jesus means to change the world, as much as Cleopatra or Simon Maccabees or Pontius Pilate, but not on the world's terms. And that will play out in the story that we hear in Holy Week. In, Jesus, in, in Jerusalem, Jesus will confront the powers that be. He'll be betrayed. He'll be arrested. He'll be falsely accused. He will be crucified. And it seems like the power of might prevails. All along, though, Jesus insists that the power of God's love won't be stopped. The peace that Jesus promises, the beloved community that Jesus makes possible, it doesn't come of coercion or force or violence. It can't. It never can. It comes of trusting in the way of God's love and mercy and justice. The kind of faith, the kind of hope that Jesus embodied is enough to change the world, to transform history, to save you and me. That's the power of God's love. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The question then, the question now, the question always is, who are we going to trust? Is it the power of might or is it the power of God's love? 
We all want things to change. I mean, there is so much wrong in the world. But how do we make it right? And the triumphal entry is a great story. If I'm honest, though, there are times I would like Jesus to ride a war horse. You know, when I read the news about Ukraine, honestly, and I've been a pacifist for a pretty good while now, my first instinct is, yeah, we should send them tanks. Yeah, we should send them more munitions and missiles. We should send them some fighter jets. I want Jesus to ride a war horse sometimes, and instead, he rides a donkey. There's times I'd like Jesus to go to the capital, go to the seat of power and fix the political mess. I'd like Jesus to lord it over my opponents. Except there's plenty of others who have that same idea. And we're starting to see what happens when Christian nationalism seeks power. Instead, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, goes to the temple, and he prays. I want Jesus to take on the powers that be on their terms. And instead, he dies on a cross. It can be hard to trust the power of God's love when we live in a world full of war horses and fighter jets. So we read this story every year on Palm Sunday. We read it year after year because every year we face the same question again and again. Who are we going to trust? The truth is, most of us here today are pretty powerful people. I mean, compared to almost anywhere else in the world, we are very wealthy people. As I look around, many of us are white people in a country that was built for white people. And it's always going to be tempting for us to use power to sustain our privilege, to sustain our, to sustain our way of life, which often comes at the expense of others. To use the personal power of our positions or our wealth or our connection to get what we want and to use systemic power to protect what we've got. So the question is always, do we trust the power of might and wealth and prestige, or can we believe in the power of God's love in Christ Jesus? Love that was born to us in a stable in Bethlehem. Love that healed the sick and fed the hungry. Love that bore God's forgiveness for us all. And even at the end, when Jesus was being crucified, he refused to do anything other than love. He prayed for the ones killing him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you believe in the power of God's love? If you can, this story shows us what that kind of love looks like. I mean, it's interesting, it's significant that for all of the other symbolics of this story, much of it is about the details of getting a colt, of getting this young donkey. Jesus calls two of his followers and gives them specific instructions and he sends them off. And it's been suggested that those two disciples that he called were James and John. And if you look back just one chapter to Matthew 20, there's a story where James and John come with their mother, uh, kind of an overbearing stage mom in this case, but their mother who asks Jesus, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. In other words, when you come into power, Make sure they have seats at the table. Make sure they are players. But that is not how the gospel works. That's not how the power of God's love works. Instead, he sends these two disciples to take care of the mundane details of preparing the way of the Lord. And we're told they went and did as Jesus had directed them. And that's what believing in the power of God's love calls forth from us still. It calls us to the daily often mundane work of preparing the way for God's love to enter the world. 
Stuff like taking dinner to a neighbor who just got out of the hospital or spending a night here when we host families who are experiencing homelessness or holding a prayer a colleague who just got laid off. And because we live in a world of systemic inequity and global conflict, it also means advocating for laws that are more just and generous and sustainable. It means supporting relief and development and peacemaking work through groups like MCC and Mennonite World Conference. It means praying for peace and then acting for peace. We're called to the daily, simple, practical, persistent work of preparing the way of the Lord, of preparing the way for God's love. In this story, Jesus makes a memorable entry. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He enters a world of royal barges and violent revolts and imperial power, and he asks us to believe, to hope instead, in the way of God's love and mercy and justice. Who are we going to believe? May God grant us the faith and the strength and the wisdom that we're going to need. Amen.